Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is part two of my interview with engineer producer Ed Stasium. First of all, let's talk about not so super super fans. Industry consultant Mark Mulligan recently wrote a post that really summed up today's music business pretty nicely. He pointed out that back in the days of physical products like vinyl and CDs, the average superfan might spend more than $100 a month on buying music products. In fact, in the UK, there's actually a term for it called the 50 quid bloke. That's someone who would regularly walk into a record store and wander the aisles for a little while and begin to pick up CDs and vinyl albums and maybe some merch and wind up paying about $50 or $60. There are fewer of these superfans anymore because streaming has put a ceiling on what they can spend. With so much music now available for about $10.99 a month, and fewer record stores than ever, the number of these superfans has really fallen drastically. While more people stream than ever before, and the streaming user numbers keep rising, there's a cap on what most people need to spend on music that wasn't there before. Back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, superfans were album fans, and that meant they were album buyers. And there was no ceiling on how much they could spend. Now a casual fan spends the same amount every month as a superfan. So you're probably thinking about the super fans for superstar acts like Taylor Swift's Swifties and the BTS Army, but these tend to be fanatical towards a single artist rather than music in general. Super fans are willing to take a chance on new music because the album cover looked cool, or he or she recognized someone on liner notes, or they heard it played in a record store. That doesn't happen nearly on the scale that it once did. So to make super fans again, Fans need things to persuade them to spend, new things that actually build and deepen their fandom rather than simply just another opportunity to get them to spend a dollar like we have in the current music business model. Artists, managers, and record labels have been looking for that item for more than a decade, and until now, it just hasn't been found. One thing's for sure, there are many potential super fans out there, and all they need is a good reason to become that again. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new Hitmaker Engineer interviews, and much more. To get your copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now here's something interesting. Sun amplifiers are back. That's Sun, S-U-N-N. Sun amplifiers was an iconic brand in the 60s and 70s, but most people don't know its origins. It grew out of the Kingsman of Louie Louie fame. So that standard song, Louie Louie, from the Kingsman? So there are two brothers in the group. Bassist Norm Sundholm quickly realized that his small bass amp 
wasn't going to cut it. His brother Conrad, though, had experience working with audio gear, so he helped upgrade the bass amp. Soon afterwards, the brothers successfully created a high-powered concert bass amp that they could use for their shows. And this was so successful that by 1965, they opened a full-fledged factory in Oregon. So the difference between amplifiers of the day and sun was that it was rooted in hi-fi sound and focused on bass amps during the early days, but they still made guitar amps and PA amps and more. Since bassists at the time wanted loud, clean tones, their focus was making loud amps that didn't break up at higher volumes. And this is great for bassists, but it's not that desirable for a guitar player who really wants those overdriven sounds. But then came their solid-state amps. Solid-state amps in general are thought of as being thin and harsh and cold, especially from that era. But Sun's solid-state amps were an exception. They were able to create solid-state guitar amps that were still warm and bassy and rich. So much so that Sun's beta lead amplifier was even used more recently by Adam Jones of Tool and Kurt Cobain. I actually had a Sun Solos 2 that I used for a lot of years and really loved. Well, as what happens with a lot of companies, Fender purchased Sun in 1985 and then tried to reignite the brand. But it was really nothing more than a decent Fender amp with a Sun logo slapped on top of it. It wasn't selling much, so in 2002, the brand was retired. But it's back now. Fender has teamed up with Mission Engineering to bring back some of its most popular models, including the 100 and 200S, and the solid-state beta lead and bass heads, along with the line of speaker cabinets. What's interesting here is the fact that traditional amp sales are going down, as new players are really happy with the sounds of modeling amps and pedals. Interestingly, though, Sun is looking for investors and has numerous stock, crowd equity, and crowdfunding campaigns available on its website. If you're interested in a newly reissued historic amplifier or you want to invest in the company, go to sunamps.com. That's sunamps, S-U-N-N-A-M-P-S dot com. My guest today is producer engineer Ed Stasium, who was an essential element in the New York punk and alternative rock scene in the 70s and 80s, having worked on seminal albums by The Ramones, Talking Heads, and Living Color. He's also worked with a wide range of artists, including Mick Jagger, Pretenders, Soul Asylum, Smithereens, Motorhead, Joan Jett, and many more. Ed was one of my first guests way back in September of 2014. It's always great to catch up with him to hear about what he's doing. While in part one of this latest interview, we spoke about some of Ed's history, in part two, we traded some studio stories, talked about his home studio and mixing in Atmos, and much more. I spoke with Ed via Zoom from a studio outside of San Diego. Okay, let's come up to the current times here. The last time I talked to you, you were in Colorado, and now you're down near San Diego. I'm, first of all, curious, you seemed like such a diehard East Coast guy, and you were also part of the defining sound of New York, you know, with Talking Heads and Ramones and, and Living Color and, and all those. And then you wind up on the West Coast and you choose to stay. So what brought that on? Yeah, a couple times. This is actually my third time on the West Coast. I always, I always loved the West Coast. I, I loved L.A. When I was working for Tony Camello, um, we did a couple film, sound, uh, film soundtracks for Brute Productions. It was Fabergé's, uh, they had a record company and a film 
film company for Fabergé, the perfume company. Yeah. We were working on one. There were two. We, there were two records, two soundtracks we did. One was released. I don't think the other one was released. The one that was released was called Welcome to Arrow Beach. And it was with Lawrence Harvey. It was actually his last film. And he was dying of cancer. And he was he was he would come to the the mix room and he would be still be smoking in his hospital where it was wacky. And we they put us up in the Beverly Hills Hotel. You know, first time, first time in LA, fly first class, put us in a, you know, in the Beverly Hills Hotel. You know, fantastic. We, we were there for, you know, a good week, week and a half, hanging out uh, in a bungalow. We, Tony and I shared a bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And um, we went to, uh, there was a fellow named Rick, Rick Baxter, who was like the young, young go-to guy who ran the record company and the film company. They won an Oscar for uh, Best Picture. I don't remember the name of it, but it was like in 73 or 70, around there somewhere. But the, this this film, um, Meg Foster was also in it. I remember she has incredible, incredibly beautiful eyes. And it was it was about it was, a, it was kind of a horror film. And uh, so I just sort of stayed at this hotel. I got to rent a car. I'm just, you know, went to Tower Records. Of course. <laughs> of course. It was probably in 74, somewhere around there. And um, so I just always loved the place. And then, you know, from from Tony's, I moved to Canada to work at the studio more in Heights and then um, ran into Tony Bon Jovi in New York when I was doing um, audio supervision for uh, Alan Schwarzberg, the drummer, had the house band for Geraldo Rivera's one on one telethons. And I ran into Tony there. He says, hey, I'm leaving Media Sound. Bob Walters and I are going to build a new studio, which turned out to be Power Station. So they they paid for my my moving expenses from Warren Heights. I was there just, just under a year and came back, uh, ended up in New Jersey. And, um, you know, that's when all the Ramon stuff, talking head stuff, all that business. You know, I came back in 76. My daughter was born. And then, you know, just started doing all that that New York stuff. And then I split up with my daughter's mom in 1981. And I had been working. I've been doing stuff. You know, I spent the summer of 1980 in, in Europe and in um, in, in England. Um, met Pat Moran, the late Pat, great, late, great Pat Moran. I worked at Rockfield with the Searchers. And then I worked with a band called The Spiders. That's kind of Seymour got me uh, the gig with, the, of course, The Searchers was on Sire. Doing a little, did a lot of crazy work for uh, those uh, for Sire. A lot of you know Alder Reserve. There was a bunch of records that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> I co-produced that Alder Reserve record with Marshall Chess. Real interesting fellow. He's a cool guy. Of course, I haven't seen him in decades, but I, I did manage to squeeze a copy of um, the Rolling Stones' "Cocksucker Blues" from a three-quarter inch video that he had. I made a VHS <laughs> copy, which I still have. And then I came back. I was just kind of slow the summer. And then I just got an urge to move on for, for no particular reason. Uh, oh, I met a gal. That's right. I met a gal in London when I was doing the Searchers record. She's since passed away. And we had a, a wonderful love affair. And she lived in L.A. And she asked me to come out and visit me. So I, I went out and visited her. And I, I never left, basically. You know, I stayed there. I was there on a trip for a little while. I think the Plasmatics were playing 
on um, that show Saturdays. It was ABC. It was like a Fridays. Fridays. It was called Friday. Exactly. You you got that. Yeah. I was um, you know trying to keep competition with Saturday Night Live. So Plasmatic said that you know help with that, and um, I, I was there for a while, and then I went went back. Sarah, uh, Sarah's mom, Susan, who's since passed away as well. Uh, we broke up and I went back and met a couple other people that I knew that were living out there. I, I slept on floors. I slept on couches. I was couch surfing. I started going to record companies. I had met some record company people, especially um, uh, people at Chrysalis at that time. Ron Fair was working at Chrysalis during that time. I met Ron. Uh, and Ann Monday was running the publishing department. Uh, she had gone to Chrysalis to run their publishing after she had wor been working for Elton and Bernie. And uh, this, I just kept meeting these Steve Moyer from yeah, the, to, the manager. Yeah, right. Manager, manager cat who managed me for a little while. Um, now I think he's just he just Brendan O'Brien only, or even if Brendan's even working anymore, I don't even know. He probably retired. And I just dug it. And then. I was out there for a couple of years, 83. Okay. So, and I didn't work, I didn't work all that much. I did a band called the little girls. I remember I did a band for, uh, I partnered up with Liam Sternberg, a producer and songwriter. He actually, he wrote walk like an Egyptian for the bangles. Hmm. And I remember he sent me that demo. <laughs> it was a great, I mean, this is a great song. What are you kidding me? Partnered up with him. We did a band called burning Rome for A&M. It was my first big deal production. I co-produced it with Liam. Uh, David Anderley uh, was the the A and R for that, I believe. That's a long time ago, and I haven't talked about this in a while. So, um, okay, I get a call from Dave Jordan. So I'm in LA from like '81, not really doing well. I'm living, I'm renting a little half of a house in Laurel Canyon, which was really nice, small, the smallest kitchen in the world, really tiny, tiny kitchen, but it was fun, you know. Um, I started meeting a lot of people, you know, art, artsy people, writers, art, artists, musicians. And I get a call from my friend Dave Jordan, who I had met and um, ended up meeting Dave through Jerry Harrison. They were working on a solo on Jerry's solo record together. They, I, I forgot which records Dave had worked on with Talking Heads with, with Brian Eno. But he was working on Jerry's solo record. Uh, and Jerry said, hey, get, there's a party. Come on to this party tonight. Dave was there. I met Dave. And then I started doing, uh, Gary Gunton was Dave's manager at the time. And uh, just started doing a little bit of work for them um, at, at uh, oh, what was that studio? Uh, El Dorado? El Dorado, exactly. Yes. Yes. El Dorado. Yeah. And so I knew Dave. Did a, did some, I remember doing some bands, just demos and did the Dickies? We did a Dickies record mm -hmm. there. I did, Liam and I did that as well, and um, <laughs> it's a good record. And I get a call from Dave, who says, "Hey Ed, I got I, I can't do this guy. Peter Wolf just left Jay Giles and wants me to engineer his record. I can't do it. I'm recommending you. Here, here's Peter's number. Give him a call." So I call Peter. And I fly out to Boston, meet with Peter for like a day, have dinner. I fly back to L.A. He says, you're hired. He calls me the next day. He says, I want to work with you. Let's, let's do this. And I'm there. Okay. Um, and I was living with a woman at the time, Francine. 
And um, I said, well, can, can I bring along Francine? He said, oh, sure, bring her along, you know. And uh, I never went back to L.A. I stayed away for, you know, and I get to New York, I, I, to Boston, working in the car studio, worked at Sinclair Sound. I worked there, too. It was funny. Yeah. yeah. It was a cool little place. MCI stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. You know, it was fun working with Peter. We had a food budget. Those were the days we had a big budget, food budget. We jam. All sorts of people would come down from, you know, Joe Perry would drop in and, you know, all the cars guys. I met all those guys. Elliot played on the record. You know, I'm still friends with Elliot to this day. There's a fun, I, I need to tell a funny story about um, this was when they were doing um, that record with Mutt. Uh, Heartbeat City, it was called, I believe. Mm-hmm. Okay, they went... Uh, I think they were recording in England. I don't know where they recorded it, but they were working on it for a long, long time. And it was, they had taken a break. And then, uh, you know, they, they, they got very friendly with all of us. They all knew Pete and, you know, they came in. And so Rick comes in one day, says, hey, I'm going, I'm really excited. I'm going to London. Did I tell you this story already? No, no. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm going to London to mix the record with Mutt. Okay, cool. Have fun, you know. Can't wait to hear it when, when it's finished. Okay, so we keep working. We were there for a long time. I mean, it started in November. We were there through January, uh, February. We worked on this on Lights Out a long time. Ended up going to New York in March. Anyway, so, okay. So this is probably in January or something of 84. Yeah, because we had had a New Year's Eve at Rick's place, at Rick's house. There was a party at Rick's. So I'm sure that's before he went back to mix it with Mutt. They probably took a winter break. And uh, so, okay, so we're working. And Rick comes into the room and he looks all sullen. You know, he's like, hey, guys, how you doing? what's going on, Rick? How's the, how'd the mix go? Oh, Rick Rick says, well, man, I had to leave. I was there for two weeks and Mutt was still working on a kick drum sound. <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> well, I have one, too. Okay. <laughs> you got a Mutt story? Hey, no, no, but it's a Rick story. So... I did a couple sessions with Rick on one of his al- it, w- it wasn't the Mud album. It was an, another album. Maybe it was his first one. Or it could have been some demos. I don't recall. But anyway, it was in a studio outside of Boston, which I can't remember. And I remember I got a drum sound. It was okay and whatever. And then uh, Roy Thomas Baker walked in. Oh, wow. And Rick says, oh, let Roy get his drum sound. I said, yeah, sure, no problem. So I stand back and Roy gets in the console and the next thing I know, all of the VU meters are pinned everywhere. Yeah, right? I know. Isn't yeah. that crazy? Yeah, right. It's like, oh, <laughs> I guess that's the sound. Yeah, I might have told you that I worked with Roy at the studio Morin Heights on a pilot record. That well, was... you didn't tell me that, but I did read about it. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, briefly, so Roy was a big inspiration to me. Yeah. First of all, he's a fucking laugh riot. He's the funniest guy ever. And... um so I had a, uh, I was on staff with Nick, the great late Nick Lagona. God, we're talking about so many people, and so many people have died. It's crazy. We're still here. Thank, yeah, thank heaven. Yeah. yeah, we're very lucky. I'm very grateful as well. Um, so Nick and I, the, the bands that quit gear uh, came previous to the, them showing up. So we uh, set up the drum. We had a drum booth at the Studio Morton Heights, and you know I had come from. Tony Camello's place where we just covered everything for separation. There's a drum booth, you know, there's a guitar amp, put a blanket over it, you know, yeah. just covered everything up. And, you know, Roy came from that British school of ambience. And um, so we put the drums in the drum booth and then the band comes in and Roy comes in the next day and uh, 
Speaking of playing safeties, of you know when uh, Bruce played you a thriller, well, Roy played a night at the opera. Mm. It sounded amazing, and yeah. I had never heard it before. It was right when it was coming out, right when Bohemian Rhapsody came out, and I'm like, it was <laughs> jaw dropping. Anyway, so we set up in the drum booth, and so Roy comes in and he's like, "Where are the drums?" They're in the drum booth back there. What are those drums doing in that silly little booth in there? What, what's that? Get them out of there. Put them in the big room. Let's get some lovely ambience. And since then, ambience is my thing. Yeah. So I, I owe Roy for that. Where were we? <laughs> we were talking about L.A. Yeah. And then so Pete, so we go back to New York and um, not New York, Boston. We finish up in Boston and so Pete takes me out to dinner. He wanted Bobby Clear Mountain to mix the record. And um, I said, yeah, great. Bobby's, you know, amazing. He's like the man. He still is the man. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, he's great. Gotta love Bobby's work. Just remarkable. He takes me out to dinner. We have dinner. And he says, Ed, you think you could mix the record? I'm there. Sure. I had never worked on an SSL before. I worked on an SSL, but didn't have the computer mm -hmm. uh, with a band. uh that um, they're called the sites and Jeff Greenberg village recorder was managing the sites. And that was when I was, that's in my LA trip. That was like in 83, 82 or 83. So I'm there. Yeah, yeah, sure. I can. And you know, I'm, I'm kind of, okay, I can do that. I can do that. Why not? Of course I can. Oh, great. Cause you know, I was going to ask Bob, but, but you know, we, we, we've become, we've come, we've become close and I really like the way you're working and you know, let's, let's mix it. Okay. So how to find a studio in New York. And um, I had known about the SSL. I had popped into Bobby's session at some point, and I was still in LA when they got that first SSL and he was working with uh, Dick Wingate on a Lena Lovitch mix. When Lena Lovitch, she's what a great artist she is. And Bobby, you know, showed me just, this is, this is an SSL. I'm like, okay. And like I said, I had worked on a couple times. I forgot the name of the studio, but it didn't have a computer. So, okay, we find, right, we find, Francine, my uh, who had, was kind of edging into being coming my manager as well, and taking care of all you know clerical things and booking studios, et cetera. So she got on the horn and somehow found Right Track, which I had actually worked at when it was on Twenty Fourth Street with Legs McNeil doing a band called Shrapnel. That Daniel Ray, who later would produce Ramones records, was in that band. Mm -hmm. So we found Right Track and. Sure, I can mix that. But we kept continued. We continued it through March, through like April until May, like another two months. And everybody came down to the session and we were still recording. And we'd have jam sessions. We had a jam session. Jagger would come down. He sang backing on one song. It was called Pretty Lady, I think. The name of the song that Jagger sang on. He was, you know, he was cool. And we would have, we'd have like, we'd have a PA out in the room and instruments. So, you know, we would pick up bass, guitar, whatever I would pick up. I played drums. I was playing drums with, you know, Jagger was singing. We did like Mona, I forgot, and some other, you know, Money, Honey, some a bunch of, you know, old standard songs and uh, just had a blast. And uh, Dylan came down to the studio, all these program directors, you know, from the radio stations would come in. And then we started mixing and I got onto the SSL. And I just kind of reestablished myself in New York and I'm running into people at Right Track they're going, Ed, what the hell are you doing in L.A.? You got to come back to New York. So I, I went back to New York and uh, I did always have a hankering for Los Angeles. So I just I love the warmth. I love the palm trees. I have a lot of friends there. Matter of fact, I would have moved there if, if I had known my wife and I were going to break up. 
eight months after we moved here, I would have definitely gone to L.A. Although L.A. is kind of a shithole now. It's, it's just a mess. The traffic and the homeless problem is going on. So I'm, I'm fine right here. I'm not complaining. I'm still very grateful for everything. So, um, you know, then New York again, more Ramones, a bunch of stuff. Living Color comes up, you know, in, in, on those New York trips. And then, you know, after the success of Vivid, the first um, Living Color record, and I got, you know, became an A-list kind of guy, which was nice, and stayed there for a few years. And that was nice, too. And then it was like, um, well, accountant, we had an accountant, I had an accountant by that time, so you got to buy something. So started looking at places in Manhattan, really around the same price range as they were in L- And then we went, oh, that's right, went to visit Mar- Mark Harvey, uh, managed, was the manager of Right Track Studios, the late, great Mark, Mark Harvey. And Herb Alpert hired him to manage A&M Studios. And I was out in L.A. for some reason. I don't remember what the reason was. We were both out there with Francine, myself, and Mark invited us over to his house in the Valley for dinner. He had a swimming pool. We started talking. It was warm. And uh, I, I said to Francine, I said, you know, let's, we should look at some places out here. I think we were doing Fetch and Bones. I don't remember. I should write all this stuff down someday. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Want to help me with a book or something? Just a manuscript. Um, and then, you know, saw Mark Harvey's little place in the Valley. It was very affordable. We didn't get a place, but he was in Studio City. We, I, we, so we looked over Sherman Oaks, found a place. It was great. It had a swimming pool. It was a small place, but, you know, one of those uh, post-World War II tract homes. But it was really nice. You know, it was comfortable. Had a guest bedroom, had two bathrooms, had a garage. Set up my trains in it. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and um, in August of 89, uh, bought the place in Sherman Oaks and pretty much kept a place in New York. Didn't buy a place in New York, but kept it renting. And because I was still going back and forth quite a bit and uh, just then re- reestablished myself in Los Angeles. Started working at A&M all the time. Even the second Living Color record, we you know cut, we tracked it at A&M. I loved A&M. A&M was great. And it's not the same with, since it's been Henson. No, and, and they, they apparently, I haven't been there. I used to, I was there all the time in the, in the early 90s, early, mid 80s. Well, 86, I started working there with yeah. Long Riders when I was still living in New York and staying at the, uh, whatever those places are, that's on Barham Boulevard. I don't know if they even have them. Oh, anymore. yeah. No, it's still there. I, I passed the other day and it has a different name, but yes, the... Yeah, that apartment complex. Apartments, yeah. and they have yeah. everything. You know, they have all the dishes, yeah. and you know, um, I'll think of it as staying there. So, but then through the nineties, I would, I just love that room. I, it was just fantastic. Which and one? Then, which one? A or B? A. A. Yeah, a. of course. Tracking in A. Loved being in there. We tracked the Smithereens uh, blow up in A as well. A bunch of stuff I've done in there. And, but they apparently have closed off those ISO booths that were on. If you're looking, yeah, the- it's different. It's not bad, but it's yeah, not yeah. the way it used to be. That's the problem. That was great. Mark Harvey was managing the place, you know, yeah. gave me time for my my son would come out and we'd do demos of my son's band. He just, ah, no problem. Just get in there and, you know, work. It's okay. I'll give you a couple of days, a couple, three, two, three days. You know, it was, it was, it was a blast. I loved you see all your friends. I really miss the camaraderie of, 
you know, walking into different rooms and seeing all your friends working, whoever it may be. Yeah. You know, you know people from LA, for people from New York, when Bobby Clear Mountain was working in the mix room all the time, you know, stop and have a coffee or something. It was great. I, I, I miss all that terribly. But then again, it's been over 20 years now that we've been missing that camaraderie. Yeah, it's not the same at all. No, well, we have this, we have Zoom. <laughs> I want to jump ahead for a second and sure, man. I want to talk about your current studio which is in your home. It's your home, yes. right? It's a, spare, it's a little spare bed. It's an extra bedroom. I have the whole house wired up. I've tracked here. I can track here. Well, you've collected a lot of gear over the years. Yeah, not really. No? I'm not, not, not really. I always see you with very cool guitars, and I see a Rick 12 over there behind you. I'm doing overdubs. I'm working with Rose, Rosie Flores right now on some uh, on four songs, and you know, I always want to throw something down, see if I can improve it. So I was actually uh, yesterday and today I'm putting a 12 string part on one of her songs. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. But I don't, but I don't have a lot of like, you know, I mean, I have an LA two way, I have an Avalon, you know, I've got some DBX. I got a lot of Evana stuff, you know, which are my favorites. Cause I don't track that much. Last year I tracked a lot, you know, I did a long writer's record here. I did a, this guy, Paul West from Maui. He came over, we, you know, Kenny Aronoff came by and played drums on it. And I just keep the drums are set up in a L-shaped living room. One is like the couch and the TV. And then the other end is a big bookshelf. And um, the drums are just set up in there and they're just all the microphones are still on there. But I, I, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a gearhead. You know, um, I don't have all that stuff. I, it's a small, unique, you know, I've been doing a lot of mixing you know, I don't use outboard gear. I do everything in the box, except for I use a dangerous two bus on the way out. Okay, well, let's talk about that for a second, because I know you've done at least some Atmos mixes. Yes, yeah, doing Atmos. I have, a, you know, a, Nico Bolas called me like three years ago. And what he, I remember his exact words. He said, Ed, you're a great mixer. you got to start mixing in Atmos. I'm there, what's Atmos? And why am I a great mixer? You're the great mixer. <laughs> you know, I'm always, I'm always down on myself. I think I'm a... A hack, honestly. You know, I, I don't look at myself as being any. Just I'm. Just, I just look at myself as doing the same thing I did in my parents' basement, except there's more stuff. You know, just turn the knobs till it sounds good. I, I don't know circuitry. I don't know what makes things work. Um, so Nico calls me up and talks about Atmos. And like years go by, COVID happens. The year goes by. Then um, I start to. I have people at Rhino that I deal with. Um, all, I did a, a bunch of Ramones box sets. Um, we did Leave Home, Rocket to Russia, bah, 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 Road to Ruin, It's Alive. And we actually, Rick Rubin and I did a the remix that Phil Spector produced, End of the Century, which has yet to come out for some unknown reason. We finished that like three years ago. So I have a good relationship with the Rhino people. And uh, uh, this gal, Suzanne Savage, got me into, uh, you know, she called me last a year ago. And all of a sudden, it's like Apple wants us to start doing a lot of catalog Atmos mixing. Okay. Um, so uh, I didn't, what do I know? So I, I called Nico. I said, Nico, Suzanne wants me because he's been doing a lot of Atmos stuff. He has his own, he has a room. I called Nico and I talked to Suzanne. And I said, well, I, you know, I don't, I'm willing to put it into my home, but I don't know. <laughs> I admitted to Suzanne, like, I don't know. I don't know how to to do this. I don't know how to mix it up. I don't know anything about it. You know, I, so I, I what we booked the village, a village recorder has a new room with uh, an, an Atmos room. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, Suzanne is like, 
okay, we want you to do the Talking Heads catalog in Atmos. Okay. So Nico came down uh, for, for the first day. He set up an Atmos template for me, which I still use. He set it up and he says, okay, it's going, sit down. And it was kind of, na- it came to me very naturally. I became acclimated to, to it very quickly and um, started working. Jerry Harrison was with me. Um, Jerry Harrison, myself, and um, uh, E.T. Thorngren uh, did all the Atmos mixings for the catalog stuff. So during that time, I was actually doing, last July, I was doing the Long Riders. We were tracking here. We were, they were here for two and a half weeks. We tracked like 16 songs, did all the overdubs here. It was fun. I love those guys. It's the third record I've done with them. And it was it was nice to have the camaraderie. And we had, we had catering, you know, it was fun. We didn't work long hours, came in, you know, started at noon, finished by seven or seven or eight. It was great. And it, including dinner and lunch. And um, so right after we did the Long Riders, I went up to L.A. And Suzanne was gracious to pay for my hotel and pay for the, you know, for uh, for the village recorder. And I was up for, for like five days and uh, got used to it. And uh Nico was there for the first day. I, I got some opinions from different people and uh, everybody, you know, dug it, dug what was going on. And uh, I really enjoy it. I love it. I know there's a lot of poo-pooing going on about Atmos for many reasons. Um, but, you know, hey, if you're sitting in this room right here and you listen to it, anything, it sounds fucking great. It really does. I, you know, tap myself on the shoulder, but it's, it's so much fun. You know, and I don't go flying shit around. I just, you know, kind of spread it out a little bit and over the top and some stuff in the back. So it's just an extension of the stereo mixes that I do, really. For and they for uh, you know, and I always import like you know, I, I did all of '77, um, Talking Heads '77, and uh, I, I import the production mix and you know, A B it, and then a lot of the times for, uh, we have to do some time stretching with the multi track because of tape differential. You know, the speed's running a little off slightly. Matter of fact, for a bad company track, uh, I, mix, I feel like making love in Atmos. And um, it was like, I worked with, I forgot, I forgot his name, but there's a fellow that, you know, we, we get on, he gets online and helps me with it because it was just too complicated. It was, it moved like five different times. <laughs> Some of it were going okay, then it would just go off again. Yeah. Like the, the original, either the multi-track or the, the stereo mix. Uh, machine was just you know fucked yeah 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 right <laughs> it, it was not working so then i took a little vacation when i got back from vacation the first week of august last year i put it in an atmos the atmos system um using um the uh the same speakers that uh we're at uh nico has and um that uh you know the village have and you know i dig it a lot matter of fact it's funny speaking about full circle i just did uh Sony now has the uh, last night in the Pips um, catalog. They got it from Buddha. The original record was on Buddha, Midnight Train in Georgia. And um, I just did an Atmos and a 50th anniversary stereo mix of Midnight Train to Georgia, which was a blast going back and revisiting. It's the multi track sounded like shit. The drums are always so embarrassing. Huh. I got to work on it a little bit, you know, but it's just a great song. It's a great vocal performance. And it was a lot of fun to revisit that after 50 years, 50 years right now. You don't listen to that song for the sounds. No. You listen for the performances. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I didn't ask you this the first time you were on. It was kind of like too early in the process and I wasn't figuring this out. 
I think we did it on the phone as well, probably on the phone. To- uh, Might have been. But that said, considering your time in the business, what's the best piece of advice that maybe you received from somebody or maybe you just figured it out along the way? <laughs> I have my own personal picks and it says, trust your instinct. Uh, I love it. That's That's my advice to everybody. Trust your instinct. I've done that. I'm doing it even before I got into it professionally. You know, it's just, just, I I fly by the seat of my pants and I just, I don't know what, I don't know what I do. I don't know. People, obviously they have some, they like something that I'm doing. I don't know what it is. I don't, you know, I just turn the knobs until it sounds good to me. I never, I didn't do any studying on anything. I never, you know, I don't know anything about what's inside of these pieces of gear. I know where to place a microphone and I don't really look at the frequencies. I just turn the knobs and close my eyes. Oh, that sounds good. I don't do it to any chart. There's no, there's no rhyme or reason for anything that I do really isn't just make it kind of sound until I like it until I think, Oh, that sounds good. That, that feels good to me. Okay. So you learn from a lot of interesting people, or at least you were around Bruce and Bob Margaliff and, and Bob Clearmountain did you take anything from those guys that helped you or was this just strictly the way you felt about it and you kept going, following that direction? With, with, with Bob and, and Bruce, it was, you know, I was in a band. So, you know, I was kind of absorbing the, the signal path, getting more of the signal path. I, you know, I had, I always had a tape, I got a tape recorder when I was 10. So I always had a tape recorder around and, you know, then I figured out what going direct was and, you know, you would get the alligator clips and a phone jack a quarter inch jack on, on your, on your, uh, when you got your new tape recorder for Christmas. Yep. Well, my new tape recorder. I did that recorder. too. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you open up your transistor radio and look at it and go, what if I put these two clips on the speakers? And then it sounded hi-fi. It didn't sound like a microphone did. It sounded hi-fi. And, you know, I would do things with my, uh, my, when I was a kid, uh, my guitar amp, I would take the, I would take the the speaker external speaker output of my super reverb, and even though it would be kind of overloady, I would plug that directly into my uh, tape recorder because I, I yeah yeah but it worked. <laughs> I have I still have some of those recordings, it's just sounding direct out of the super reverb, and you know sounded cool. But um, as far as immediacy with Tony Bon Jovi, you have to do things quick, get things done. Don't don't spend. You know, I don't spend a lot of time getting sounds like Mutt. Yeah, right. (laughs) Honestly, you can't argue with Mutt's success, that's for sure. But I just, you know, hit the drum a couple of times and I don't, I really don't EQ on the way in, you know, and I don't EQ that much at all, really. Um, But, you know, just set it up and go. See your pants, trust your instinct. Um, That's my advice, you know. If you really love what you're doing, something will happen with it. I just, I loved recording. I loved rock music and, you know, ended up here, you know, with a, a moderate amount of success and I'm still doing it and I'm still, I still get paid for it. It's crazy. You know, um, how, how many people can say that, that, you know, we've been doing something for, you know, 50 years professionally and still be in the, in the game. You can find out more about Ed at edstasium.com. That's edstasium, E-D-S-T-A-S-I-U-M.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. 
Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music news, audio and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 